Hi, this is Julie Davis, chair of the American Burning Association's Board of Directors, and I want to ask for your support as we approach the end of our nesting season appeal, supporting the ABA's Young Birder programs. The ABA board is matching all donations toward our nesting season appeal up to $17,500 through June 30th. This means with your donation today, you can double your impact to send a young birder to camp or provide an opportunity for a young birder to partner with experts in the field through our Young Birder Mentoring Programs. You can double your impact to help these teens experience the wonders of nature while exploring the world of birding through art, science, and travel. Double your impact to make a difference in the life of a young person and support the next generation of birders and conservationists by making a donation before June 30th online at aba.org appeal or Call us at 800-850-2473. Now, please enjoy this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick and I am back from our ABA Community Weekend in San Francisco and Oakland, California, both richer in lifers and experiences as we partnered with Leica and with Golden Gate Audubon, soon to be renamed, of course, to host a fun weekend of birding in the Bay Area. Hello to all of you who turned up and who are listening now. It was great to meet podcast listeners in person and to bird in a place for which I had no prior experience. Let me tell you, chestnutback chickadee and California quail were lifers for me. I think that probably says it all about my experience in Northern California. So I saw a lot of great birds and I had a lot of great experiences with a lot of great folks. And after the event was over on Sunday, I got to head down into San Mateo County, south of the city with friend of the ABA, Alvaro Jaramillo. He's also one of the hosts of the Life List podcast, which if you're not aware of it, you should be if you want more birding podcast content in your life. And who, who doesn't? Al netted me lifers like Marbled Merlet, which was great. And a couple mammal lifers, including sea otter and long-tailed weasel. So it was a, a merlet and mustelid kind of day. All in all, a fantastic weekend in a beautiful place. Thanks to Clay Anderson and Whitney Grover from Golden Gate Audubon. Thanks to Whitney Lenfranco from Leica and Wayne Serrano from the Leica Store San Francisco. What a fun time. Keep an eye out for our next ABA Community Weekend later this year. On the show today, I welcome back my colleague Ted Floyd for another edition of Random Birds. Who knows what the random number generator has in store for us? Well, I do, I guess. I recorded this a couple weeks ago, but I'll try to act surprised. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of June 2023. The ferruginous hawk that I talked about last week which spent a short stint in rehab where it was fitted with a GPS tracker, is still tooling around the Midwest, this time making a brief flyover in Indiana before turning east into Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania, where it was spotted at the time I'm recording this in western Pennsylvania. For at least one of those states, West Virginia, this would represent a first state record if someone actually saw the bird. And as far as I know, no one did. Whether such a record should go on the state's official list is an open question, but not one that I have to decide. Thank goodness the tracker did put it over that little nub of West Virginia that shoots up between Ohio and Pennsylvania, though. It has been a great week for really good ABA area rarities, starting in Charlotte County, Florida, where else, where the ABA area's third record of dark-billed cuckoo was discovered last week. This is a long-distance austral migrant, primarily found east of the Andes in South America, interestingly enough, not too different 
from the large build turns found a few weeks ago. And to Alaska, where the birding has been ridiculously good recently in terms of Asian vagrants, even by the excellent Western Alaska standards, highlighted so far by a first ABA area record of Kentish plover on Shemaya Island in the Aleutians. This is the Eurasian equivalent of our familiar snowy plover and was, in fact, split from snowy plover just over 10 years ago. It was joined on Shemaya by a veritable smorgasbord of amazing birds like dark-sided flycatcher, Kamchatka, leaf warbler, Eurasian siskin, and common cuckoo, among other more regular vagrants. And that is hardly all from Western Alaska, as St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs saw multiple gray-streaked flycatchers and Siberian ruby throats and a Eurasian hobby, small Eurasian falcon, in the same period. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook or in ABA community. It's been a while since we've remembered some birds, so I've invited back my colleague, birding editor Ted Floyd, to do so with the help, of course, of the random number generator and a list of birds found in both states of Colorado and North Carolina, where Ted and I are based, respectively. Welcome back, Ted. It's been a while since you've been joined a little the while. Thanks for months. having me. Yep, a couple, of, couple of course. Months. How's how's birding in Colorado these days? These early summer days, uh, because it is very unsummer like here in the southeast. It is wet and rainy. I assume that is an El Nino thing, but uh, I don't know if that sort of sort of thing is happening over on your side of the country. Yeah, so we actually had a record. Uh, precipitation sort of the past uh, six weeks here mm. uh, it's actually been really quite wet so far and it's june now by the way so far mm. uh, in, in june so maybe not all that dissimilar but a, a fairly cool and, and quite wet uh, sort of late april throughout all of may and into uh and into june but uh, but here we are now with the uh the uh, month of migration behind us and i guess yeah. we can uh, return to work and family and lives <laughs> and stuff like that now so. i don't know i uh, i did my breeding bird survey this morning my first of three right, right. Uh, and it was uh un- unseasonably cool and drizzly which mm. was not a very pleasant breeding bird survey but the birds were singing mm. so that they know it's spring there was a lot of stuff out there um, but it's uh, usually it starts in the 60s and you, know, you have to record the, the time and temperature when you start the, mm. the breeding bird survey and then record it again at the end. The start, it usually starts in the 60s and gets up towards 80 this time of year. This time it was 59 degrees when I started and 59 degrees when I finished <laughs> some four and a half hours later. Uh, so it's been it's been an interesting summer so far. That actually sounds very pleasant by uh, sort of well, North Carolina rain, standards for the summer, nice. right? Yep. <laughs> for those who maybe have not heard of uh, Random Birds, the random number generator that we do from time to time, I'll explain. Uh, I've created a list of the birds that are common to the states of North Carolina and Colorado. So all the birds that exist on both states checklist both together states checklist and i'm going to use a random number generator that i pulled up from our friends at google and just um i've assigned all the birds a number i'm going to use the number generator to choose a bird and ted and i are just gonna kind of talk about it though i will say you know we don't have to talk about experiences with the bird in our given states that it is sort of a place to start we tend to go in all sorts of other directions it's kind of a fun conversation that requires very little setup or uh preparation in fact it works better if there is no preparation uh ted are you ready to uh, put our fate in the hands of the random number generator? Randomize me. Randomize. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm going to generate the number. It is 143. Any guesses as to where that's going to land? Right. So, and actually, I'll just remind listeners, or what about, do we say 
386 species, species in common. In and common. The, and the number you said was what again? One something? 143. Right, so I don't know, somewhere around herons or something, depending on which checklist you're using. Yeah, right? I know. I created this a couple of years ago <laughs> okay. when we first started doing this, and taxonomy is rearranged a little bit, so maybe that question doesn't quite mean as much as right. it used to, okay. but so you're not hawks, far off. I, I don't know. Okay, yep. You're, you're not far off. It is uh, It is great black-backed gull. Oh, so a bird that you get many more of in North Carolina than which, we get more uh, here, in, encountered in, here in Colorado. Yes. Um, but it, it's, it's a great bird. It's, I, I believe, the Indeed. largest Indeed. gull on earth um mm-hmm. in fact i think it's the largest boy I, yeah i get sort of tripped up on who, who's who in the huge order caradryiformes but it's one of the largest caradryiformes on 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 earth it's just a, a monster of a bird uh, kind of an, an odd um sort of thing about the, the great black back i remember a, a case once in, in colorado where we had uh several eagles standing out in the ice and there was a great mm-hmm. black gull out there with uh, bald eagles by the way adult bald eagles and you know, it was obvious enough which one was the great black back gull, but it didn't instantly leap out either. Exactly the, the, right. the great black a great black back gull sitting on the ice, an adult bald eagle standing on the they're both standing on the ice are not all that dissimilar. They have white tails, yeah. <laughs> white heads, and very dark. At least in the case yellow of the gull. Uh, yeah, oh, I, well, I, we were pretty far away from the bird, but yes, yellow. And by the way, very big yellow bills too. Yeah. The the uh, bald eagle, of course, has a legendarily uh, big schnoz, but the uh, the the gull. The, sorry, the bill of the great blackback gull is huge too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, as as you said, this is a bird that I encounter every year. It's hard to miss when you're out on the uh, on the coast of North Carolina. Much more common in the winter than it is in the summer. And uh, yeah, as you say, you know, it, it is it is. Frequently shocking, especially when the bird is among other gulls or among other birds, just in general, as you said, with the, with the bald eagles, how large a great blackback gull is bigger than a red-tailed hawk, which I think most yeah, people would, quite a bit would agree is a large bird, yeah. um, is more massive than a, than a great blue heron. Which is tends to be kind of stretched out. Wow, I wouldn't more. have guessed that, huh? Um, it is, it is, it is a, it is a monster, and uh, it has an attitude to match. I think a lot of people have stories, and, and you can certainly find this stuff online if you search "great black black gull eating stuff." Yeah, eating uh, like big <laughs> things, like you know, rabbits. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's it's yeah. not just you know little helpless baby birds. You know, it, it's it's large prey items. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I know a story, and I, I did not see this, and I may have said this on the podcast before i can never remember it's been a while and i, I feel like i've gone through all my stories but um, <laughs> this was this was recounted to me by a friend that did it one of those winter pelagic trips out of hatteras um where they don't go all the way out to the gulf stream right. in the winter they tend to stay within the side of shore the whole time because the target species are alcids and, and skua and things of that nature and so you're always sort of followed by a large flock of gulls that you're chumming to kind of get the interest of the of the birds that people want to see and great blackback gull is always like a major part uh of those of those of those large gull flocks and um there was it was a particularly good dovekey year in in north carolina so people were getting dovekey all the time which is one of those birds that's shockingly small yeah. uh, as an all said and um it was a a great blackback gull and a gannet ended up getting in a fight over a poor dovekey that ended up uh, being <laughs> swallowed i believe by the by the great blackback gull um, Dovkey is not a very big bird. That's like a skittle for a for mm-hmm. a great black fat gull. But they are they are vicious. I, I know stories of them like drowning ducks and coots and and all sorts of vicious mean things. Um, is is a bird that if it were human any larger, uh, I don't know <laughs> that I would want to mess with at all. Yeah, it's a bird that um, I sort of 
I don't want to say controversially, but problematically, uh, has mm. been um, the subject of biological control because uh, yeah, preys really. on you know birds like least terns, you know uh, mm-hmm. birds that have you know uh, um, you know state or, or federal. Uh, protection. Just a, two, two other, just little random facts about the, uh, the great blackback gulls. It's a very rare bird for us in, in Colorado. Imagine, it, it is, a, it yeah. is, it's annual. We do get them every single year. But uh, one in particular has been returning to um, Pueblo Reservoir, just uh, south of where I live, for I know it's 27 years in a row as of Jeez. 2020. Yeah, and I think it's still coming back. And it has a really cute name, and I can't remember the name anymore. But but this this great blackback gull. Uh, was in at least its 27th season with us, I think, in, in, in back in 2020. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention about um, Great Blackback Gull has to do with the uh, the Merlin Bird ID app, which is, of oh, course, okay. uh, everybody's on minds uh, these days. Um, you know, Merlin is getting better and better, but uh, it made some um, sort of comical mistakes uh, back in the day. And it, invariably, uh, when I would just speak into the, the phone to, you know, um, my own voice, it would always call me a great black back gull. That was like a, a guarantee. Like my voice always uh, brought up a great black back gull. But you know the um, the uh, the machine learning you know gets gets better and better, and uh, that mistake is no longer made. It recognizes me recognizes me as a human. But there's a period there of like a I don't know maybe a year year and a half where I was consistently um, being identified by Merlin as a great black backed gull. So I thought that was cool. <laughs> That's very nice. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's funny that their your local great black back gull in Colorado was given a name. The given the human an impulse to to give a QC name to all of our returning birds. I honestly cannot think of a bird that is less deserving of a QC name. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe it wasn't cute. Maybe it was Bruiser or something. But but but, yeah, but, 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 right. but it but it did have a name, or, or I should say, it yeah. does have a name. I, for all I know, it's still coming back. But yeah, um, yeah that bird has been a, a wintertime fixture um, at Pueblo Reservoir for literally for for decades. Yeah, they they show up. Um, you can get them inland uh, sure. here in in the in the Carolinas as well. Typically. If if you get access to a landfill, and landfill practices have changed a lot in the intervening two decades, so those sure. are you know it's it's actually quite difficult one to get access to mm. these landfills anymore, and two, um, they don't seem to be as appealing, at least the ones in my area, to to goals, large blocks of goals as they used to be. They kind of churn the garbage up into the dirt a little bit more, so mm. there's less like open pits full of uh, vittles for goals. Mm. Um, but that would, would inevitably be a place where a black, great blackback goal would turn up amongst the Blocks sure. of ringbill gulls and where they, which they dwarf, and um, herring gulls, and uh, any other kind of other interesting gulls like lesser blackback or uh, or glaucus, if you're really lucky. Sort of thing. Yeah, in Colorado, they tend to be sort of predictably at, at large bodies of water, especially mm-hmm. uh, in the, the Front Range metro region. In part, that's because where people are birding, and be that, mm-hmm. that's because where there are a lot of big reservoirs. But um, once they're at our reservoirs, they tend to be pretty. Um, I don't know honorable birds if you will They're, they don't I, we don't really i don't see them too often around you know yeah. dumpsters or fast yeah. food parking restaurants i mean i don't see them very often but but they, they tend to be you know on the shore or in the water you know sort of finding their own food so they're yeah, I mean, girls. <laughs> I would agree with that uh, characterization on the coast as well. They seem less inclined to hang out at, uh, to slum it at fast food parking lots right. like the ring-billed gulls or even even the herring gulls will do sometimes. Sure. Um, they they are pretty much on the ocean. I mean, Laris Marinus, that's, yeah, that's yep, the name. Yep, yep. It's, it's a good name. It's the original seagull. Mm-hmm. All right. Shall we, shall we see what the yeah, number generator has what's for us again? Next. All right. Generate. 35. Oh, so right at the beginning there, it's going to be a grouse or a duck or something, I guess. It is a duck. It is. A, we might have a theme developing here in terms of a color pattern because this is a long-tailed, long-tailed duck. duck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you nailed it. 
Yeah. Uh, well, the long-tailed duck is a, a, a black and yeah, white a, bird, like yeah. like the like the great black back to go. Um, very complexly uh, black and white, though. The, uh, the so the great black back gull has a two uh, molts and plumages per mm-hmm. year. Well, they can look sort of similar. Uh, the long-tailed duck is very unusual among well, birds in, in general. It has a uh, more than two molts uh, per year, sort of continually in the presence of always a uh, uh, process of always just sort of acquiring new new feathers as it goes. Uh, as to how many molts it has, it's actually a matter of uh, sort of like a matter of like theology almost. Like what, <laughs> what you define as a discrete molt or plumage, but the long-tailed yeah, duck is, huh. is quite unusual for having uh, more than two molts uh, per year. Um, the bird is indeed long-tailed. Uh, the uh, males are dramatically long-tailed, but the females are very long-tailed and, and very beautiful as well um for me by the way uh, and we never hear this in colorado it's a coastal thing but the uh, the thing that just i don't know steals my heart every time with the long-tailed duck is its incredible vocalizations um i just it's not there's not a north carolina story but at least an east coast story the um my second to last bird of the year 2022 was uh was long-tailed ducks a yodeling at uh, sundown on mm-hmm. uh, new year's eve uh in 2022 just going berserk and um i should say berserk they're just going going mellow and peaceful or something <laughs> in a long island sound but like you know it was i mean it was already dark it was like 4 45 p.m on a really cloudy misty day and that yeah good old tom Connolly over and over again so just an incredible sound and they keep it up i mean all day long all night long all winter long it's uh, one of the most to me which is one of the most evocative sounds in nature for sure do you have a um a um a colloquial name for long-tailed duck that you favor one of them was Tom Connolly. That's a good one. I was just going to look up here because um, I know it's got a bunch of them. Um, no, but I, I I do remember reading, and this has always stuck with me once that the 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 best way to understand or, or to, uh, to 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 memorize the demonic for it's uh it's it's I'll I'll call is that it's like a uh, it's a Philadelphia vowel, and I don't really even <laughs> I've lived in Philadelphia. I'm not sure what a Philadelphia vowel is, but no every idea. every time I hear um a uh, long-tailed duck, I can't help but think of you know folks you know barking at each other in a s- sandwich shop in South Philly or something <laughs> like that. So no, um, I, yeah, I does the long-tailed I, duck take it with whiz or without? Hmm, I don't know. Yeah. I guess we'll never know. Um, do you prefer the summer plumage long-tailed duck or the um, non-breeding plumage long-tailed duck? And this is a, a question also. Have you ever seen a breeding plumage long-tailed duck? Because I never have. Yeah, so we have to be careful what we're when we talk about breeding plumage and summer plumage and ducks, you know, it gets, it gets, really oh, right. Tricky. Yeah. yeah that's because true. Winter plumage is breeding. Plumage. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, I thought that was the beginning of a, of a trick question there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, summer, summer and winter. I, I mixed it up there. Right. So, um, y- yes, I have just because I've been on the, the Arctic breeding oh, grounds nice. for, for, yeah. for them, but, um, no, the, 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 my vast, the vast majority of my experience with them, which is by the way, has been coastal, really East coastal, mm-hmm. um, has been with birds, uh, in the, in the winter months, um, what you know, one thing about the the long-tailed duck too that's worth pointing out is, in addition to the, I said black and white, you know, that that really strange little, cute little pink bill, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, you know just by itself doesn't really look like a duck's bill or color um, at all. So they're, they're also kind of they're that cute little, little nub of a pink bill. That's a funny mark on them. How frequently do they turn up in Colorado? Yeah, they're annual. Um, they're yeah. more common, or actually less uncommon than the great blackback gulls, but. Um, Fall and winter, really. Um, you know, certainly uh, never in the summer, and very, very rare in the spring. So we get a, a small pulse of them in um, sort of late fall, starting you know after Halloween, you know, starting around maybe mm-hmm. mid November, yeah, uh, and especially curiously um, on, on mountain reservoirs. So if you're out in the Rockies, hmm. you know, the heart of the Rockies, when you know before 
the big reservoirs have frozen over for the winter, uh, you know, you might luck out and see a flock of, you know, eight or 10 long-tailed ducks. And then often there will just be one or two, you know, hanging out on a major reservoir, sometimes a small one in the, you know, the Front Range metro region. There was one right in City Park in downtown Denver one winter that, you know, everybody yeah. got to see. It was just, it was right there in the middle of town. It was on a small pond There was well. one. There was one a few years ago at a small pond in the middle of Winston-Salem. North Carolina yep. a few years ago, just a really sharp looking male, and yeah. everyone got really nice looks at it. My very first one uh, ever, I didn't see a uh, long tailed duck until I moved to North Carolina and my first sort of mm. real experience uh, birding the coastal part of the, um, of the, of the state is that uh, in order to see long tailed ducks, you have to take a ferry across Pimlico Sound. So if people mm. are familiar with the, with the geography of North Carolina, they've got the outer banks that kind of stick right. out and have a little elbow there. Um, and between the mainland and the Outer Banks is a big sound called Pemlico Sound. Right. And in order to get to some of the Outer Banks, uh, Ocracoke Island in particular, you have to take a ferry uh, from the mainland. And what you do is you go on this ferry, and it's usually very calm because it's the sound and not the open ocean. And you just kind of glide across, and you can set up your scope if it's really nice and not too windy, right on the ferry, um, right on the ferry deck, and uh, scan around. And a lot of times you will come across um, a handful of long-tailed ducks, and that's exactly what I did. The very first time I saw a long-tailed yep. duck was on the in the middle of Pemlico Sound on the car ferry from Swan Level out to Ocracoke Island. And since then, I've seen them a handful of other times. Sometimes they end up in little marinas and harbors uh, on the Outer Banks or close to the coast. But uh, that that was a very evocative, very yeah, evocative they, experience. They, they get well south, but um, my understanding is, that I'm thinking now the Pacific Coast population in particular, mm-hmm. they, they actually really are, they're, they're kind of like pack ice birds. So, you know, yeah. most of them are still quite far north in, mm. in the winter. You know, I, we think of you know, these huge flights of like scoters, you know, coming down to yeah, our latitudes. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and it's true. I mean, some, some long tails definitely get down to North Carolina. In fact, yeah, south of North Carolina. Sometimes. <laughs> right. But, but um, again, I'm thinking Pacific here and we need to talk Jared Clark or somewhere about, about what they do on the Atlantic side, but mm-hmm. they're well North. I mean, we're talking like, you know, pack ice uh birds hmm. uh, even in the dead of winter so um, where there's open water they they're up there yeah i imagine there's quite a few of them that winter overwinter on the great lakes as well they they don't come south inland unless you know there's a lot of freeze up yep. up to the north uh, otherwise they're pretty much much exclusively a coastal bird at least around here all right shall we hit it again let's do another one let's do another one uh we're going to the end 372. Oh, yeah. You, and we had how, how many total? Three. Out of 386 total. So is that going to be a warbler? Or? It is a warbler. A warbler, okay. It is black-throated green warbler. Okay, so we're staying with this uh, theme here of birds that are seen more commonly yeah, in North Carolina than in Colorado. <laughs> we have to have at least one Colorado-dominant bird in this. But, uh, oh, we've uh, got to. We've got to. Yeah. I think it's just, I don't know what the, it's, it's, they're all vagrants for the most part yeah. on one or the other. There are very few yeah, birds so, that are like uh, regularly found right. in both states. So, so I would I would use, you know, I think vagrants a fair word to describe the black-throated green warbler status mm-hmm. in, in Colorado. Um, it, it is, it's, it's of annual occurrence. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it does show up every single year, so it's it's a you know regular, but um, sufficiently rare that I would certainly call it a vagrant here. Um, one interesting challenge we have in Col- uh, Colorado that, um, as far as I know, you either don't have in North Carolina or certainly don't think about too often is um, the possibility of hybridization with um, 
with Townsend's warbler. Yeah. So yeah, no, interestingly, the, the ranges, you know, the black throat green warbler, which you know, I think of as like a classically Eastern bird, mm-hmm. and then the Townsend's warbler, which is j- just just for listener's sake, it's not an interior West bird at all. It's like it's a far Western bird. But those Eastern warblers ranges go way to the it's West, way to the West in in Canada. Um, yeah. in Canada. And then the um, the Townsends and the uh, black-footed greens actually overlap a little bit. And uh, just to put it in perspective, where they do so in like British Columbia is well to the west of Los Angeles. Like people are mm-hmm. really, but, but they actually because you know the, the Los Angeles actually sort of curves in eastward there in the southwestern U.S. So black-footed green warblers get far to the west, and um, the birds that come through. Oh, so we by the way I should also say we get a fair number of Townsends warblers in Colorado. So in fall. Uh, when we have these, you know, sort of uh, the, the classic dreaded, you know, first fall females, you know, mm-hmm. they're certainly identifiable as, you know, something in the Townsend's black-throated green, you know, group. But uh, but there are probably more hybrids out there than a lot of us realize. So my, my most recent encounter with a bird with black-throated green warbler parentage in Colorado was mm-hmm. of a bird that we were pretty sure was a, a hybrid. Hmm. So. Yeah, I wonder. Um, we have a very small number of Townsend's warbler records in um, in North Carolina. I want to say fewer than seven or eight. Um, and black-throated green warbler, obviously a common migrant, both spring and fall. Much more common in fall than it is in spring. There's more birds out there. Uh, breeder in the Southern Appalachians. So if you get up, you don't really even have to get all that high in the Appalachians before you start encountering breeding uh, black-throated greens. And then, you know, we do have some birds that kind of stick it out through the winter occasionally, particularly on the coast. And I, I wonder if some of those birds are, it, it seems like sometimes birds that stick through the stick through the winter are more from the West than from the East. I know we sort of talk sure. about that on oh, species yeah. that are, have a wide continental distribution. Um, I wonder if they, I'd have to go look at some photos of winter, wintering black-throated green warblers in the Carolinas and see whether whether some of them show some signs of of hybridization, a yeah, little bit of, yeah. Little and bit I don't mean to give in the breast yeah, on the side. Yeah, I, I definitely don't mean to give the impression that you know every black throated green oh, no, 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 color is a candidate hybrid, but probably a few. But yeah, I, I just think it's really cool though that you know this you know when I think of the the great biomes for birds in the United States and Canada, you know East, Interior, West, and Pacific Slope, and it's actually the Pacific Slope birds that are joining the Eastern birds there and producing these um occasional hybrids. Hey, one thing about the black-throated green warbler to, to me is cool. So it's in that uh, huge warbler genus, Cetophaga, which, you know, mm-hmm. they, they look incredibly distinctive, but a lot of their mm-hmm. songs are um, very, very tricky, like Yellow mm-hmm. and American Red Start and uh, Justice I and others. But I don't, I've never, as far as I know, now maybe this is just my own naivety or naivete or ignorance, or I've never heard a black-throated green warbler that wasn't like just obviously annoying. Oh, yeah. Black yeah. yeah their their calls are, sorry, their songs green. are so, yeah. yeah, zoozy, yep. zoozy, or zoozy, yep. zoozy. And, um, oh, and even their little chip notes, yeah. which, um, it, um, which actually do sound like Townsend's warbler chip notes, but I've always thought that the uh, chip note of a black-throated green warbler, at least if you're in the eastern forest, has it sounds like a little like a little piece of metal kicking around in a, I don't know, like a hmm. canister or something like that, but it has a really um, unique song, or, or two songs. There's a, like a primary song and a secondary song, and then a pretty distinctive uh, call as well. Yeah, well, this is an interesting one to talk about from a southeastern perspective is because we have a very distinctive, well, That's I don't know, it's right. very distinctive. Yeah. We have a a subspecies of coastal plain breeding right. yeah. black-throated green warbler called Wayne's black-throated green warbler, yeah. named after Arthur Wayne. And um, it's I one of my one of my first jobs. It was a volunteer job when I when I did some work at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in the Bird Collections uh, unit was to take all of our black-throated green warblers and measure <laughs> all the parts on them, uh, the Wayne's ones and the the nominate subspecies, because someone was doing some work 
on trying to you know suss out exactly how mm-hmm. distinctive Wayne's black throated green warbler is from the the Viren's, uh the nominant one and um yeah it was fun that's how I learned to measure measure birds like oh. measure the Coleman with the little with the little device and measure the wingtips right. and and all that stuff it was kind of fun I I could not tell the difference between the two and these were study skins too um so you know the, your mileage may vary on how different they are a lot of that is up to the preparator uh but supposedly Wayne's black that greens are, are a little bit smaller, a little bit thinner, a um, little bit more black in the throat and on the sides. But other than that, it's a very yeah, and, distinction. Yeah. You know, the cool thing too, is just, you know, that we're just always learning new things about sort of where these populations occur. You know, t- to me, when I, when I think mm-hmm. of the black throated green warbler, I just think of the, this classic, you know, Northern hardwood forest breed yeah. that, you know, gets down to the Appalachians. It's just like thick as flies, you know, New England, Southern Canada, or Southeast yeah. Canada. But um, it wasn't that long ago that, um, I hope I have the details right here, but um, Kim Smith, uh, Paul Rodewald, and uh, Jay Withcott uh, extended the range of the black-throated green warbler, this really well-known bird, you know, well into uh, the uh, s- southern Arkansas, which like, oh, really? whoa, like, really? Well, or yeah. maybe central Arkansas. Yeah, always Arkansas. Yeah, I shouldn't say yeah, but you know, well into Arkansas. And, you know, just basically nobody done looking for them out huh. there. And it's just really cool that, you know, they found, you know, quite a number of uh, black-throated green warblers in Arkansas in the summer. And I just remember that result came out. And it's been, you know, several decades now. I just, there was a real kind of, mind bender for me because i just hmm. really thought we had something like you know the black throated green warmers e- easy to identify uh, it's 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 conspicuous it's it's well known it's common i mean it's got everything mm-hmm. going for it yeah. and then uh, when you know paul and jay and kim you know came along and said well actually guys it's you know it's right here in arkansas in the middle of the summer I thought that you know cool. it's interesting um the missouri ozarks missouri and arkansas ozarks that's that's where i grew up that's where mm-hmm. i spent my formative birding years um actually has a lot of really distinctive populations of those Kind of species, not just black throated green warbler, but also cerulean warbler is a breeder there that a lot of people don't, maybe don't realize. Uh, Swainson's warbler, sure. at least historically, um, there are a few pockets of them around. Um, famously, Rufus Wing Sparrow, right. uh, uh, Rufus Magazine. Crown Sparrow, Rufus right. Crown Sparrow, right. sorry, yeah. on yeah. Mount Magazine yeah. in right. uh, Arkansas and the Ozarks, and um, oh, there's a couple other ones, but um, yeah, that's a very old, old mountain range, and it's got some some weird. Uh, Weird things going on from a biodiversity. Perspective. Yeah, and, and just to be clear on something, um, I, I don't believe that that research demonstrated any like uh, genetic or morphological mm-hmm. distinctiveness. It was just an outpost. Of yeah, the, exactly. The I think that's the case. Appalachian population. Yeah. yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty pretty neat stuff. Black throated green. Um, I, I always think of them as uh, a bird that does very different things in the su- in the spring as opposed to to the fall. I don't know if this is something that you have encountered as well. Um, in the in the spring, they're very much that treetop, top of the hardwood forest. Usually, mm-hmm. doesn't come down very very far. You That's hear fair. them more yeah. than you see them. Right. Um, at least here in the in the Carolinas where I live. If you go to a place around the Great Lakes, they're obviously come down a little bit because that's just the way things are up there. But um, they're they're usually just super high up in the in the trees in the spring. But in the fall, I almost always see them in like uh, goldenrod. Yeah, it's hedges. The um, these kind of real thick, dense, uh, grassy areas. Yeah. Um, but they're, you know, not more than six to 10 feet off the ground. Right. Yeah. It's funny now that you, by the way, I've done very little late summer birding in the East in a long, long time. But now that you're, you're sort of like uh, dredging up all these old memories for me about, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like in the, in like August, you know, seeing black throated green warblers on migration yeah. with like uh, chestnut sided, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm trying to think like uh, magnolias, you know, you, you mm-hmm. birds that are, are, are sort of low down like that. Hey, I'll also mention on a general note that the, uh, the, current issue of birding the one that just came out uh, has an article on finding um warblers in late summer mm-hmm. and um you know one of the themes there is just that you know, warblers sort of 
do different things yeah, uh, sure. in late summer from sort of how we're maybe you know, more sort of stereotyped the way used to thinking of them when they're, you know, behaving properly, you know, singing brightly and right. m- marvelous, you know, fresh new uh, spring plumage in, in, you know, late April and May. Yeah. yeah. I, I love a fall black throated green warbler. That's usually when I see them every year. I certainly get them on my North Carolina list yep. in, in, the, in the fall because they're yep. more widespread. And, they, and I'm thinking more of my formative years in Western Pennsylvania, but so this mm-hmm. may just not, not sure how much applies to North Carolina, but um, they have an incredibly protracted fall migration. Yeah. Oh, they'll, to, they'll you know, hang they, around they, till November. But, yeah. But, you know, but they start showing up early. I mean, they're definitely mm-hmm. on the move in the lowlands, you know, by, you know, mid August. And uh, you, you, what you said November for November, right? For, but but, you know, but yeah. certainly into October in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. 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 You're exactly right. That that's one of the, the tent post species of a, of a, of a Southeastern fall. Yep. For sure. Um, all right, let's do uh let's do another one. Let's, let's do another one. Number. 290. 290. So I don't know, early to mid passerines, I'll say a right. nuthatch or something. Or... Finally, finally you get a bird that <laughs> uh, is a Colorado, um, Based, preferred species yeah. okay uh lesser goldfinch oh uh, yeah the lesser boy i'm surprised you have lesser goldfinch in we north have, carolina like, three <laughs> records wow, okay yeah. maybe two yeah. not very many yeah actually I'm, I'm not totally surprised i know that the species is um uh, dramatically expanding its range mm-hmm. uh north and east and especially in winter the winter range is a uh, really expanding uh yeah lesser goldfinch is a bird that um i heard just this morning i was just uh waiting for an errand uh, to complete in Boulder and was just walking the mean streets of, of Boulder, Colorado. And that little deer call was just, it's one of the common sounds of summer in, uh, in Colorado. Once you're in the, um, you know, the foothills, the base of the foothills, um, some of the riparian stringers going out into the plains, but especially the Rocky mountains, it's just a great, um, Colorado sound and sight in the summer months. It's a, it's a, it's called the lesser goldfinch. It is noticeably smaller than an American mm. goldfinch. The American goldfinch is not a big not bird, a big but, bird but, yeah, yeah. but a lesser goldfinch is a, a tiny little bird. And, um, it, you know, I guess it looks like an American goldfinch there. Yeah. It's a little yellow bird with some black on it, but the, uh, the vocalizations are just so different. It gives this, uh, sort of endearing little as it, I don't know if that picked up or not, but you know, that, that was a downslurred whistle, which I just did there. And then it mixes it up with these little calls. And um, that sound once learned, it just it's one of the dominant sounds of summer hmm. uh, in in Colorado. So just a, a tiny little bird and um, cool um, bit of biology about the lesser goldfinch is that it is a fantastic mimic. Yeah, American um, goldfinches too. Yeah, but I goldfinch. think lesser goldfinch kind of like probably really steals the the top huh. billing there um with uh with among like even just the finches in general. Uh lesser goldfinches throw in so many different birds vocalizations. But you know they're these mm-hmm. unlike a mockingbird, you know, which is a great big, you know, hulking bird with like lots of uh, you know, a lot of vocal apparatus to make lots of deep throaty sounds. The um the uh, lesser goldfinch, you know, has to just sort of get these little wimpy versions of uh, bird sounds. But if you listen to a lesser goldfinch, you know, in, in just doing its thing, you'll yeah. you'll hear everything. I mean, Plumbius vireo gets thrown in there. Or, you know, western tanager, black-headed grosbeak. Uh, it's just sort of like a who's who of the of the birds of the uh, the western forests. So. Do you get the uh, the green-backed version or the black-backed version where you are? Right. Yeah. So well, we get both. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it's funny, we were talking about Arkansas earlier, and I think wasn't the the black-backed one was long ago, wasn't it called the Arkansas, Arkansas Goldfinch? Gold the Arkansas Goldfinch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now we know that it's just a um, 
it's, they're, they're not even subspecies. It's, oh, it's really? just, oh, it, no, well, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong as usual, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I believe they're just um, sort of, you know, color morphs with like a geographic basis hmm, to them. Okay. The, you know, a lot of raptors are that way, even yeah, like uh, Ye- Ye- like Jaegers. You know, they have, yeah. they have co- well, those are subspecies. Oh, they're but, subspecies? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, no, but I, I believe that they're, they're just, they're morphs with this geographic basis that for some reason aren't aren't subspecies and hmm. again i could be wrong on that but um anyhow yeah we are uh in a place in the range of the birds where both the uh the, the greenish backed and the sometimes quite strikingly black backed yeah goldfinches do occur yep yeah it's funny i think uh north carolina has two records of uh lesser goldfinch um both feeder birds at some showed up some randomly at someone's feeder mm-hmm. and were not chaseable so no one has no one not that i that i know of no one has uh this bird on their their state list other than the people who were graced by its presence at their feeder and uh, we have one of each a green back oh, really? and yeah. a black back which is a uh, which is nice um yeah. yeah i don't think it means anything but uh it's just kind of nice <laughs> yeah. hey one thing i'll just say about uh detecting lesser goldfinches you know in, in the east because it is a bird that is migratory so mm-hmm. they get around for starters and they are expanding their range especially in winter is um just know that flight call you know it, it's so it's so distinctive it's you know has two parts sort of the way like a lapland long spur does you know the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the rattle and the whistle it has a little down whistle in the case of the goldfinch and then just that sort of stutter as well and uh you know it's we, you and i have talked before about you know whether you know a really rare bird record could be accepted based like only on the basis of you know the herd only flyover. Well, but let's say you didn't even have Merlin because with Merlin, hopefully you would actually have the recording, yeah, which would be very go. diagnostic. Yeah. But I mean, for the sort of person who is familiar with the flight calls of the lesser goldfinch, you know, if they just heard one flying over in, in New York, like I mean, I get it. That's probably not good enough for the New York State. What is it? And, nice right. York state avian records committee but it would probably be good enough for me like it's just such a distinctive <laughs> vocalization uh it has yeah. two components to it and both of them like by themselves are distinctive and together they're, they're really unique common feeder bird in the west um uncommon feeder uncommon. bird oh, yeah i don't uh you know american goldfinches you know t- tend to come more to feeders um lesser goldfinches sure they, they will visit feeders mm-hmm. but um since they're mostly summer birds, when birds mm. are less oh, fierce, right. anyhow, um, yeah, during the winter months when it's a, it's still a good bird for us up in the northeastern part of the state. You know, they do tend to find their way to feeders, but even there, it's sort of more like they're just like in the general company of feeder birds. Um, mm-hmm. they, and by the way, somebody's going to call them the show right away and say, "I saw one of my feeder socket or an my thistle tweet. socket," and, yeah. and, and that is true. They they do come to feeders, but I wouldn't call them like habitual feeder visitors mm-hmm. the way that like chickadees or Stellar's jays or something are. Yeah. So, all right, let's do at least one more. Yep. And let's do it. Uh, maybe maybe more depending on how many tangents sure. this one takes us down. Uh, oh, we're staying close. This one is a two eighty two. 282 i've lost track of where we are so somewhere again in the past yeah i was gonna say so right right. i long square um (laughs) yeah and this is uh this is another bird that probably has more of a colorado bent though Mm -hmm. no quite not quite as much as lesser goldfinch it is um you know lesser goldfinch maximus it's a evening grosbeak oh yeah former aba bird of the year former aba bird of the year Many, Uh, many years ago yeah it's uh just a it's an incredibly complicated bird. You know, the less the evening grow speak yeah. is sort of uh, this like under the radar, you know, complex bird like the yeah, red cross bill with you know, multiple song speak, types. Same, yeah. call, sorry, flight flight calls, uh, 
well-differentiated populations with sort of, you know, fairly discrete geographic ranges. A little easier to uh, tell the difference between uh, different populations than red crossbills, at least uh, uh, morphologically. It's yeah. Because the, the Western uh, evening grosbeaks, don't they have that kind of longer greenish bill? And the well, within the, 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 the problem is within the West, though, we have several... Oh, what we'll call, we'll call right. them types or populations or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, I am. Um, I can. So when I, whenever I find um, evening ghost speaks, I just try to get recordings of them mm. <laughs> right, right away and try to figure out what uh, call type they, they they pertain to, since we have uh, choices here in Colorado, just as we do with with, with Red Cross bills. So, um, and, and a lot of this work is really, um, you know, it's it's in progress. You know, we're, we're still learning about the the distribution, uh, geographic distribution, and sort of like the. Uh, spectrographic distribution of these call types in, in the evening grow speaks. Are they associated uh, well. with different uh, pine species or different species of conifer like the red crossbills are? So um, my honest answer is I, I, I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I, I will also say, though, that evening grow speaks feed on um, plants that are not conifers at all much yeah. of the time. So they're really specialized here in Colorado or not, but have a high preference for a uh, box elder or ash leaf mm-hmm. maple. Uh, so right. you often will see them on the, uh, a lot of times yeah, with well, the, the samaras of the, the you yeah. know, the, the, the hanging fruits of, of trees like that. So we'll often see them in, um, especially in, um, and, um, in box elders, that's maybe the most common place of all, but we, we see them in conifer woods as well. The, um, they they get around just as they do back back east and probably more so back east than than in um than in Colorado. But uh, you know I, I think of them as sort of classically winter birds, but probably just because you know they come to feeders, especially mm-hmm. in the winter. We call them a flying motorcycle gang or flying pigs. You know <laughs> yeah, they'll just come right into a feeder yeah. and, and devour everything, make an incredible amount of noise, and uh, and then move on. But uh, they're just they're beautiful birds i mean they're, they're yeah, big they're really finches cool with huge bills and um you know yellow and black and gold the females have that sort of apple green bill which is very un- it's an uncommon color for in my experience with bird bills it actually reminds me of, like the bill of a squirrel cuckoo or something it's just a, oh, yeah, an unusual yeah. color uh for the uh, the bill of the female evening ghost beak but um you know they're they're all around uh I was gonna say, like, how regularly do you encounter evening ghost beaks well so it, they're in the high country all year yeah. round um i mean they change habitats or microhabitats. They really come into feeders yeah. in the winter. But if you know, we went up into the uh, central Rocky, southern Rockies of, of Colorado. Now they they just would be all over the place. High elevation, though. You know, not not yeah. not down in the kind of a uh, dry ponderosa pine foothills. They're up in the spruce fir. You know, the ski towns, uh, even up right around um, Timberline. And then in um in in winter, so I mean fall and winter, they they. They move out into the plains, but, you know, erratically, sort of mm-hmm. randomly, random birds, yeah. randomly. So, yeah. uh, you know, some, sometimes in flocks, uh, it's always, we were talking about the lesser goldfinches, you know, good, good to know the uh, the calls as they, they go over, they give that really high keep. And then also the sort of like a, a buzzy, almost reminds me a little bit like a great crescent flycatcher or something. Mm. But yeah, but the, they give a buzz and a, and a whistle call. Um, knowing those is, is very helpful. Yeah. I mean, for, for the East, and this is my East Coast bias, it is, it is an eruptive species. It is a species that we get in the Southeast every, um, it seems more regularly than in the past. I mean, the last five years, we've probably had two out of the last five years have been evening gross beak years. But before that, it was maybe a decade or more between visits. They are really difficult to pin down. Um, I finally got my state evening gross beak a couple winters ago when a guy near chapel hill just had a flock of like 80 of them coming to his feeders every morning and like most many birders in the state would go and he'd he'd be generous enough with his time to to put them out there he'd say show up at my house at 7 30 
you know, I will let you stand around my yard. This was in the midst of the COVID the pandemic. So that, that was a thing going mm-hmm. on. And we all kind of scattered socially distanced responsibly and uh, waited and the birds come down and, and it was just, it was amazing. It was like, uh, and you said like motorcycle gang, they would just come down <laughs> to clear out his feeders. And I asked him how, how many pounds of seed he was going through. And it was, I, I can't remember exactly what he told me, unfortunately, but it was, it was a ridiculously high number, but he was doing it just because they were such cool birds to have around. And uh, funnily enough, he had had evening growth speaks at his feeder like five or six years previous, like in his, in this mm. same place, uh, also an interruption year. So it's possible that these birds, there might be some sort of institutional knowledge, like they knew exactly where to go and they come to his feeder, you know, regularly some, some of the birds remembered, or maybe they passed down that information. Yeah, that, I have no that, idea, that, but that, that, that is a thing that happens with evening growth speaks sometimes. Yeah. That extreme phylopatry area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just such a fascinating thing. We were just talking about that this morning with a completely different bird, bird, but the ability of like birds, you know, they migrate thousands of miles to always like come back, like not just like to the same yeah. park, but like the same tree or something right. yeah. uh, like that, which is so amazing. One thing you mentioned the uh, sort of like, um, periodic or you know variable um presence of the you can go speaks you know in the, in the east in the in the winter especially and just couldn't keep in mind too that this is a um there's a very long-term element to this as well the, mm-hmm. the evening grow speak you know sort of classically or historically really wasn't an eastern bird yeah. they um they moved east i think what like 1888 or 1887 or something and this massive eruption and that coincided with the widespread planting at the time um of uh like box elders, among other things, in mm-hmm. places like Buffalo, New York, and they stayed. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so the um, there's sort of the sense that like eastern eastern populations of the evening grow speaker, they're kind of like living on borrowed time. It's like you <laughs> know this western bird that you know just sort of lucked out of you know 140 years ago uh, mm-hmm. when it made an eruption, big eruption back east, and um, and also just um, you talked about the. The, your friend who or the, the birder whose feeder was visited by this uh sort of you know maybe every 10 years you know <laughs> yeah, appearance yeah. Of, of the ghost because i remember um they, they can get really far south on a, a spring break trip in high school with a friend um into central alabama this was like uh hmm. gosh 19th spring april of 1986 there were even ghost weeks all over the place and i mean you, know, you you can't mistake an even ghost week. i remember i went yeah. to ebird just yeah. you know years later and very appropriately you know the ebird um reviewer you know well, it, it tripped the filter and you question the science. Right. Just, just you know, take a look at this. I'm saying 1986, you know, not yeah. 2016. He was like, oh, yeah, that's okay. They were all over the place <laughs> back then. So, um, yeah, I guess that was like a, a known um, invasion a year. year. Them, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, like, yeah. well, south of like Birmingham, they were way down there. So. Yeah, I vaguely recall, uh, it might have been Matthew Young who does the Finch Network stuff, um, talking about how they are closely tied with the with the with the spruce budworm outbreaks and oh, uh, right? recent mm-hmm. spruce budworm in you know eastern Canada um, because of the pandemic they were not able to spray the the crops huh. the tree crops with uh, the stuff that keeps the spruce budworm away mm-hmm. and the spruce budworm exploded and all a lot of these birds that are closely associated with them evening grosbeak uh, being one of them but also a lot of the boreal breeding warblers like Tennessee yeah. warbler and Cape May warbler and you know things of that nature. Um, hey, their populations correspondingly exploded as well. And uh, that may have been behind these relatively close years. I think it was like two winters and three that we had mm. evening growth speaks um, in the Southeast. And that's obviously very unusual. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the spruce budworm warblers, and this is 
purely anecdotal, but you probably mm-hmm. saw that incredible uh, eBird checklist from a few oh, weeks the ago. Oh, yeah. With the uh, incredible, you, uh, you said Cape Bay and Tennessee, especially bay-breasted. They had like, yeah. and I, I just can't remember the number, but what was it like 86,000 bay-breasted warblers moved over number. or something yeah. like that? But yeah, th- those three in particular, the so-called... If there weren't movies, videos of the warblers going by in like unbelievable numbers, I might not even believe it. What about uh, yeah. that they added an extra zero? Well, hey, um, what, by the way, one nice thing about zeros. that... Yeah, one, one really nice thing about that checklist, if you just you know Google the checklist, anybody can do this... Um, it's really detailed. I mean, they, they don't oh, yeah. simply say, yeah, you know, 86,000 bay-breasted warblers. They, you know, they explain yeah. how they got to that number. Yeah. And it's pretty incredible looking. Um, uh, pretty me. wild. So, pretty wild cr- credible assessment of an incredible phenomenon. But, you know. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. All right. Well, we've, we've come up to uh, 40, 43 minutes. So um, okay. that's probably pretty good. I think we'll probably wrap this up, Ted, if that's okay with you. Any other... Um, any other things to add about any of the birds we've talked about or anything you're looking forward to? Yeah, just a, sort of maybe a, a little bit of both. It is the summer, yeah. as you said. I think by the time this airs, it will be uh, getting on toward mid-June. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I will be up in Summit County, Colorado uh, in July, I think starting on the 19th mm-hmm. for the uh, big Western Field Ornithologist, yeah. Colorado Field Ornithologist. Uh, up there. We will almost undoubtedly get some evening ghost speaks <laughs> up there, and we'll have uh, several hundred of your best birding buds there with recording equipment. Uh, smartphones are perfectly good. We can figure out yeah, uh, the right. answer to that question, which type uh, they are. But uh, in addition to evening ghost speaks, we should find a pine ghost speaks up there, yeah. and uh, possibly three species of crossbills. So red, white winged, oh, and cassia is, cassia yeah. is uh, you know birds whose flight calls correspond to those of the cassia crossbill are very much in, <laughs> in Colorado, like and then a white winged, formerly known as prince. And, right uh, for yeah. birds yeah and by the way if the red crossbill is indeed as some people think a, a, a suite of you know eight or ten or a hundred species i'm joking but multiple species <laughs> uh, you'll get lots of type twos um some type fives maybe fours and threes so yeah by the Ooh. time this is over yeah we might have white wing crossbill cash crossbill type two type four type five and type three red let's crossbill and that's just the those are just, red crossbills that's and, a, there you go yeah. but um the american three-toed woodpecker dusky grouse brown cat rosy finch black finch uh, black swift um white-tailed tar again but yeah that's a uh, western field ornithologist and colorado field ornithologist starting on july 19th it'll yep. be based out of um can't believe i'm drawing a blank on this one of the ski resorts in summit county um which one is it it's not breckenridge it's what it's what everyone is the link will be in the show notes people it's, it's right it's right off i-7 copper mountain there we go copper it's copper mountain, mountain yeah. right off i-70 just go west from denver and you'll be there in a couple of hours and uh spectacular birding incredible scenery and a bunch of us will be out there uh, bring your own random number generator and your own list and you and ted can can do this on your own i'm sure you we, can, we can limit it just to random generations of crossbills so. <laughs> right. all right all Time right. seven. That's talk right. for five minutes about seven. All right. Anyway, um, Ted, it's great to talk to you again. Uh, we'll we'll put a pin in it till next yep. time. Uh, we still got three hundred odd birds to get through, great. so we've got uh, content for days. Uh, and uh, years. as always, <laughs> years more likely. Yeah. <laughs> right. As uh, it's great to talk to you, and uh, good luck next month in um, in Summit County, and uh, we'll see you around. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our amazing magazines and discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Corner Lab Ornithology, Beautio Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Technical production for this podcast is by John Lowry, who thought my observation of Oak Titmouse in Oakland, of all places, was parody. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who couldn't wait to hear what we saw at Golden Gate Park. The suspension was killing her. 
Ugh, sorry about that one. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I didn't have any earthquakes in San Francisco, but I did have common myrrh, pigeon guillemot, and marbled merlet. So I did encounter, as the French say, tremors. Question, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nick Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.